Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in-depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through their own voices. In this conversation of Migration Conversations, I speak with Jared Will, a member of the Bar in Ontario, Quebec, and New York State, and has been practicing immigration and refugee law since 2006. He specializes in complex immigration and refugee matters, especially those involving constitutional law, international criminal law, exclusion, inadmissibility, and national security issues. Many of my listeners will recognize his name because he is a lawyer listed in a lot of cases that we study. Um, And most recently, you might have watched him litigate in the Federal Court of Appeals Safe Third Country Agreement litigation. He is also the lawyer of some immigration detainees um, in litigation where he has brought habeas corpus applications, but also um, federal court challenges to the immigration detention scheme. In particular, he represented Alvin Brown and Ibrahim Touri, both um, that were interviewed for the Migration Conversations podcast. In this episode, I speak with Jared candidly about our immigration detention system, what he finds the most problematic about it, what are the ways in which we can reconceive or understand, ways in which uh, the Canadian system could improve. Um, And I hope you find this conversation as enlightening as I did. Thanks for joining uh, me today, Jared. I wanted to start by asking, how long you've been practicing immigration law, what brought you to the practice of immigration law? And um, just, you know, I think a lot of students who are aspiring immigration lawyers would love to hear where you started and how you built your practice. Um, I've been practicing immigration law as a lawyer since 2006. I did my um, the equivalent of articles in Quebec um, in the beginning of 2006, and I was called to the bar in August of 2006. I kind of came into immigration law accidentally. I um, thought that I was going into criminal law while I was in law school. While I was in law school, some people that I knew were doing work with a group called the Coalition Against the Deportation of Palestinian Refugees in Montreal, and they Um, and recruited law students to prepare a bunch of humanitarian and compassionate applications. And I was one of the people they pulled in to do that. And I ended up doing a lot of other work with that organization, but also got my feet uh, into the water of immigration law by working on those applications. Um, And then I ended up kind of by accident doing my articles with um, an immigration lawyer instead of a criminal lawyer. And that's how it happened. Um, I built my practice by sort of 
organically following my articles. I went from being a salaried articling student to paying rent in the office that I articled in. So I had, you know, my articling principles as mentors and that's how it began. That's fantastic. Um, I think a lot of immigration lawyers can relate in the sense that they have to hang up their shingle right after articling. I certainly did the same thing. And um, there aren't, there are just not as many job opportunities and you kind of have to be devoted to this practice, right? So I would like to turn now to some of your work with detention cases. Can you speak about things that impact detention in Canada and the greater turn to habeas corpus as a remedy? Can you talk about how you and a number of lawyers started turning to the superior courts to ask for this remedy? Why and whether you think it is a useful tool? There's been some mixed results as a result of some of these cases. And I wondered if you could talk about it from your own personal perspective. Yeah, I mean, there actually have not been very many habeas cases that have been litigated. I think in Ontario, you could count them on one, and if not one, definitely on both hands. Um, And I I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, One is that the law is still quite unclear um, in terms of the court's jurisdiction on habeas and the detainee's burden. Um, to establish that the court should take jurisdiction to hear the habeas application. Um, another reason is it's just, um, it's, it's burdensome. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of time and immigration law is not a particularly lucrative field and most immigration lawyers don't have the resources to jump into something like that, especially because you don't know what you're jumping into. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate that the Supreme Court had the opportunity to provide greater clarity for this in its judgment in China. And that decision leaves as many questions unanswered as there were before. It sort of confirms that in general, superior courts have jurisdiction to hear habeas corpus applications from immigration detainees, but it leaves a lot to be desired in terms of clarity as to when courts can and should take that jurisdiction. Um, And the result of that is, you know, if you're from a lawyer's perspective or a detainee's perspective, you're considering doing habeas corpus application, knowing the time and resources that are gonna be involved in that and not knowing (laughs) with any confidence whether or not the court is actually going to hear the case. And if they do, what legal standard they're going to apply. Um, And I think in large measure, it's that cloud of uncertainty that really dissuades people from going forward with habeas litigation. Um, The the other thing is the way it's, the way the decisions have been rendered, um, habeas corpus is, generally only available and a useful remedy when the immigration division process has somehow broken down in a very palpable way in somebody's case. And the detention has been quite lengthy. And the reality is that there there are far, far fewer long-term detainees than there were a few years ago as a result of a number of changes. So 
there's just fewer people for whom habeas corpus is a realistic option, which is a good thing. Um, and then for those who might consider it, there's a number of obstacles to overcome. I wanted to return to a point you raised just now is the length of detention. So I did notice that some of the cases that were brought forward were quite lengthy. Um, and was this a criteria that prompted you and a number of lawyers to um, bring these cases forward and pursue them, as you say, in these very um, involved and intense legal processes? Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, there might not be as many lengthy detentions occurring now. You know, wh why is that? What kinds of, are we still, should we still be concerned about the length of detention, I guess is what I'm saying. Sure. I mean, we should definitely still be concerned about the length of detention and it's all a matter of perspective. I mean, when we were talking about lengthy detentions before, you know, some of the cases I were working on, it was four, five, seven years of detention which is just egregiously lengthy. Um, but we still have people who are detained for months and months and months on end in situations where in my opinion, they shouldn't be. And there are still cases where people have been detained for far longer than that, usually in cases that involve some allegation of non-cooperation with their own deportation. Um, in the habeas cases that I worked on, they were all certainly cases where the detentions had been extraordinarily lengthy and where looking at what was going on it was quite clear that the immigration division and the members of the immigration division had sort of come to the conclusion that this person needs to remain detained either until they're deported or until they start behaving differently and you know you can just see that institutional psychological barrier building up in somebody's case and it's not it's not rocket science to figure out that you have to somehow break out of that in order to, to seek a remedy. Um, you um, worked on a couple of cases where, um, um, or, you know, if I can say that you've worked with detainees that um, had issues with the fact that they were simply not removable. You know, CBSA had issues with obtaining travel documentation or verifying um, their citizenship status in another country, um, you know, and as a scholar of statelessness, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how is it that, um, that our system should be functioning in a way that recognizes that this is out of the control of certain people, that they, um, that there are stateless people within our borders. And, you know, we, we, can't respond to their statelessness by just keeping them in ongoing detention until um, a different solution is found for their removal. Um, I wondered if you could comment on that. Um, yeah, there's a lot to say, I guess. Um, it, certainly there are people who are stateless and in most cases, I think, and in particular in all of the cases I've worked on, there are people who are what is called de facto stateless, meaning that they do have a right to citizenship in, in one or more countries, but those countries refuse to recognize it for some reason or another. Um, and the, the 
It never really seems to be, as far as I can tell, in the range of options that the CBSA considers when they're investigating these cases. There seems to be this very firmly held belief, um, particularly among the, it's, it's a relatively small number of CBSA officers who get involved in these long-term detention cases. And they seem very committed to the belief that everyone can establish if they want to their right to citizenship in, a, in one country or another. Um, I had a very shocking exchange with one of them in a cross-examination where he refused to acknowledge the possibility that somebody would not have a birth certificate, even though the country in question at the time in question having a birth certificate was certainly the, the exception and not the rule. Um, and so that, there's that kind of that very particular world view that informs their assessment about whether people are cooperating, what people can and can't do in order to assist with their own deportation. Um, and that's certainly problematic. Um, the, the thing that I'm noticing more and more in some of these cases is are the ways in which the CBSA's conduct actually contributes to people's status as de facto stateless. Um, you know, there's there are cases of CBSA providing misinformation to embassies and consulates in question, or CBSA trying to obtain fraudulent documents to deport people, or CBSA actually attempting deportations in situations where they have not sought the proper authorization to do so, and then the country bounces the person back. And once that happens, they're very disinclined to recognize citizenship in the future. So, you know, even though it's 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 rare that a client would want to get deported to the place in question. The reality is that the CBSA's own conduct in many cases, or I don't know, this is in some cases actually contributes to the people's status as de facto stateless persons. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, um, is there something to be said about the kinds of countries of origins that they come from, their race? Um, does that play a role in the way that um, we conceive of things? And I'm just thinking about this, you know, as a scholar, just watching how there's quite a bit of discussion in public discourse about defunding police um, and how much of that thinking about the racialization of criminalization, does that, does, do these kinds of arguments um, resonate in the immigration detention context and Feel free to tell me whether or not you don't want to comment on it or don't have thoughts on it. But, um, you know, in your experience, having worked in this field for quite some time, you know, is there any thoughts you had on, on that? Well, <clears throat> it's impossible not to notice the gross overrepresentation of Black men among long-term immigration detainees in Canada. Um, anecdotally, at least, I'm not aware of anybody who's actually studied it and looked at it. And I'm not even sure if the information is available, but certainly as somebody who's practicing, who's been practicing in this for a long time and seen a number of long-term detention cases, there is a very significant over-representation of Black men in that context. And I think it's impossible 
to assert that their race doesn't have something to do with their detention. Um, they are cast as dangerous. They are cast as liars. Um, they are, you know, assumed to be mischievous in various ways. And it sort of falls to them to show that they're being truthful rather than the other way around. And it, those are things that I think are impossible to explain without taking race into consideration. I am not aware of anybody. And I will admit that I have not tried to raise that as an argument in the context of litigating their cases. Um, those are very tough arguments to win. And um, as much as people should be making them, they're not always, I think, um, in the short term strategic interest of clients to make them. Uh, but without a doubt, I think it plays a huge role. And, Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to, you know, bring, go back to something that you said about, you know, how they're being perceived and certainly one of the grounds under section, I believe 248 of the regulations sets up the grounds for detention. And um, one of them is if they pose a danger to our society. And I wondered if you could comment about how that actually is deployed quite a bit, especially where there are detainees that are being found inadmissible due to criminality and, you know, this kind of link and how it is deployed to continue or to maintain decisions to maintain detention. Sure. Um, I mean, you certainly see a greater reluctance to release in, in situations where a person has been found in the past to be a danger to the public. Um, and that's both, I think, you know, psychologically members are more hesitant, but also that's the way the rules are written. If danger is a ground uh, that weighs against release. You know, there's a lot of things that go on in these cases that are disturbing. One is that in all of these cases where there's a criminality issue, these people don't get to immigration detention until they've already gone through the criminal justice system. So these are all people who, if they were not non-citizens, the justice system would have deemed that it's time for them to be free. Sometimes on parole, sometimes on other conditions, but to not be in detention. But somehow there's a more stringent standard that's being applied in determining whether or not they're dangerous when it comes to immigration proceedings. And there is and this is just a, my personal opinion, it's not a legal opinion, but I think that there is this prevalent idea that the risk posed by somebody who doesn't have a right to be here is somehow more intolerable than the risk posed by somebody who was lucky enough to have been born here. Um, and I, you know, I think board members just don't wanna be the ones to release somebody who goes on to commit a crime and they, that that's, and, and I think that plays a much more significant role than, for example, in the context of bail or criminal sentencing. Um, I think it's more accepted and more understood in that context that there is always a risk that people will reoffend or will commit further crimes, but we give them the benefit of the doubt and we, you know, militate against continued detention wherever possible. 
Um, so that's one thing that goes on that's really problematic. Another thing that goes on that's really problematic is, especially in long-term detention cases, it's it, it will have been a very long time since the person's last crime in a lot of these cases. And, but the, the basis for the allegation of, of danger doesn't change. It's always the crime that they committed in the past. And then the number of decisions that have come down in the interim saying that they're a danger to the public. And, um, and then the burden is sort of shifts to the detainee to show that they're no longer dangerous or that they have been rehabilitated. But unfortunately, when you're locked up in a provincial maximum security jail, particularly in the remand section where immigration detainees are, there's nothing that you can actually do <laughs> to, 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 to work towards being rehabilitated. There's no programming, there's very little access to counseling or other services. So it's, it's like you haven't done anything to demonstrate your rehabilitation. Well, yeah, but I've been locked in your jail and there's nothing I could do. We're, we're seeing a little bit less of that, but in certainly in Mr. Brown's case and Mr. Ali's case, that was the theme and it was incredibly disturbing. Yeah, I wondered if you could talk a little bit. I mean, I was reviewing um, the Federal Court of Appeals decision in Brown today and noted that there was no mention of the fact that Brown had actually lived in Canada for most of his life, um, that he was adopted um, and that he really came as a child and didn't have any connection relative to how his connection in Canada um, to Jamaica. And I wondered if you could talk about how little that plays in these decisions about, you know, not only detention, but inadmissibility, you know, um, and how, you know, Brown is just one example of a lot of people who've spent entire lives here and yet are treated like um, they're foreigners or not members of our society. Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, the, the Legally, the main obstacle is the Supreme Court's decision from almost, almost 40 years ago now in Chiarelli, where they basically said that if you break the social contract of your permanent residence by committing a crime, there's nothing wrong with deporting you regardless of how long you've been here. Um, and there really is very little, if any, appreciation of the fact that people have spent their entire lives in Canada. Again, it's the idea of you're, you, you don't have a right to be here, therefore you're held to some kind of higher moral standard in your um, behavior. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, in cases like Alvin's case, where yeah, he had been here since he was a child, he had serious undiagnosed mental health issues that were only discovered after the fact. He committed some serious crimes and served sentences for them, but his immigration detention was far longer than all of his criminal sentences combined. And nobody cared about whether or not human beings have the possibility to change um, in all of his detention reviews. There, there isn't a single one of those decisions. And in five years, that takes 60 decisions to keep him there for that long. There isn't a single decision where anybody, any of the decision makers even consider the possibility 
that the fact that he committed those crimes a long time ago may not mean that he is still dangerous. And it was very clear to me that Elvin was a very different person at the end of his detention than he was when he first went in. And it didn't matter. It was just the self-referential logic of, you know, in the past, you've always been found to be a danger to the public and you haven't shown me anything that's changed in the past 30 days that would lead me to conclude otherwise. Therefore, I maintain your detention on that ground. Yeah, his story and Ibrahim's story are very heartbreaking, having just, um, you know, become familiar with them um, in the last little while. And, and it brings me to, you know, this question that, you know, how the system is depicted in the legal jurisprudence too, how the courts have always called the immigration detention system an administrative one. Um, and you can certainly see the treatment of the processes, the availability of procedural fairness, um, the access to protection of rights is quite different than in the criminal law system. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that um, and, and how you know this construction of the immigration system as administrative really has shielded it from legal scrutiny. If you don't ask easy questions. <laughs> I'm so I mean, sorry. Couple, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, a couple of things. No, I mean, no, number one, like I, I, you know, I worked in criminal law enough and I pay attention enough to what's going on in criminal law that I certainly don't want to hold that up as the gold standard. There are many, many, many problems with um, incarceration and bail and um, racism and classism in the way the criminal justice system works, absolutely. Um, there's a few things that happen in the immigration context that I think make um, litigation in particular more challenging. Um, courts and judges, for the most part, seem quite uninterested in actually understanding how the immigration system works. Um, it's sort of an oversimplification, but in some ways I'm left with the impression that they don't think it's important enough to learn about or to understand very well. Um, so, in, and this isn't just about immigration detention in particular, in, in a lot of jurisprudence about immigration matters, there's a lot of, um, sort of very generic high level statements about how the act functions and what goes on there that are borderline accurate <laughs> and sometimes flatly inaccurate. And, you know, it's, it's a relatively complicated statutory scheme, but it's not that complicated. Like it's not more complicated than the Income Tax Act. It's not more complicated than landlord-tenant Although some people case. might argue that <laughs> the, comparing it to the Income Tax Act might make it seem really complicated. Sure, but we created a special court to deal with the Income Tax Act, recognizing the complexities that are involved. Um, anyway, the, the, the point is, it's there's just this sort of, I mean, it, it's a lot of what we talk about in that separate but equal, but unequal articles, like the idea that we've created this system for non-citizens 
they should be grateful that they have one at all. <laughs> it looks pretty good from the outside. Looks too good to me in some ways from the outside. This seems cumbersome. We're not really gonna to put our finger into this very deeply. I mean, that's, yeah. That's uh, I agree with you that nobody's, you know, the jurisprudence and certainly, you know, the litigation that I've witnessed, <laughs> Um, yeah. they, they skim the surface and look at the act at, at face value rather than really yeah. understanding how it operates, right? Which is the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I wanted to maybe um, ask you another big question, if I may. You know, um, as someone who is, you know, thinking about, you know, what is it that needs to be done? You know, the tweak, there's, there's always talk about tweaking the system, making it better, um, having more checks and balances in place, making it transparent, you know, providing more procedural fairness. But can I be so bold to ask you whether you think immigration detention should be abolished as a practice? Um, you know, what do you say to people who say, well, then what do we do if, if we can't detain people? Um, do you have a response to that? I mean, I can give you a range of responses to that. Um... <laughs> There's a lot of things to be said about that. One, empirically, like the people who have studied this, it, there are measures to m motivate and ensure compliance with immigration laws that are more effective than detention. Obviously, there's nothing as effective as like keeping somebody in detention for the entire period of time that they're in the country until you deport them. Um, but there are there, there is empirical evidence that shows that there are ways of ensuring compliance with very high success rates that make detention unjustifiable, I think, even if you accept that all of those other control measures are justifiable. That's one thing. The other thing is COVID, right? So since the pandemic, we have seen that far, 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 far fewer people are being detained and people are being released on conditions or being released unconditionally in circumstances where um, we wouldn't have seen that before. And the, you know, the numbers of people in detention has dropped exponentially and believe it or not, the sky has not fallen, right? We, there, there, there have been, there's no indication that there has been any problem that has arisen as a result of those releases. So, so those are a couple of sort of, um, I don't know, if you buy into the systems arguments points, there's, those are ways of responding to it. Um, on a, a more macro level, I don't think immigration detention can actually be justified. Um, and I've written about this in other places, but it's, it's, um, it's very difficult to adopt a legal logic, a liberal logic rather, and even justify border controls under that logic and remain consistent with the principles of equality and autonomy that liberalism pretends to hold so dearly. And you know, to go from border controls as a concept to immigration detention as a violent means of enforcing them, you would need another level of justification for that. And it's just not there um, in many, in most cases or at a general level. 
I think one of the problems from a from a legal practitioner's point of view is that the you can never challenge that assumption. The assumption is always that this tool detention is necessary and that the border control itself is justified. You can never get behind that in a legal argument. But because there is no, in my opinion, compelling argument in favor of those practices, courts will never go very close to it, right? Because they, they, they can't offer a principal justification for it. So it just stands as this sort of untouchable, immutable premise that detention is okay and that border controls are okay. And then what ends up happening as a result of that is these non-cooperation cases where for some reason in the immigration context, people are expected to behave contrary to their own interests. And if they don't, they can be punished by being detained as a result of that practice. Whereas almost everywhere else in the legal system, it's understood that you can't compel people to act against their own interests and there's protections against doing that. But in the immigration setting, people acting in furtherance of their own interests means challenging that basic assumption of legitimacy of the border and of the legitimacy of immigration controls. And that's not a conversation that can be had. So it really just gets shut down before it even begins. Um, yeah, the other thing I would say in terms of tweaking the system, um, yeah, greater procedural protections are very important and get me in the right mood and I'll rant about them a lot. <laughs> the, the most significant thing that can be done that actually has been done in a number of jurisdictions around the world is to cap the duration of immigration detention. Um, it's really important for two reasons, three reasons, I guess. One is just accountability. Like the government should, if they have something they need to do while they're detaining someone, they should have a fixed amount of time to do it in. Another reason is to avoid these really lengthy detentions, which are quite cruel. And then even on top of that, people need to know how long they're gonna be in jail. Like the, 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 the fact of not knowing how long it might go on is, in many cases, the most cruel part of the process. Um, the first day I met Alvin, he told me with great sincerity that he didn't think he would ever get out of jail. And he actually believed that. That's so heartbreaking. He, yeah, and he had come to that conclusion quite a long time before I met him. And if you look at his circumstances, you can't, like, how could anybody else conclude differently? Month after month after month, he goes to these hearings, no updates on how long it's gonna be. He keeps being told the same reason that he has to stay in and that he's gonna to have to wait, but he's already been waiting for three, four, five years for something. And why wouldn't he conclude that it's never gonna come? And that really, really takes a toll on people. And it's not just in the long-term detention cases. Like when you meet people and work with people who are just coming into the countries and, and they're making a refugee claim and they're being detained because they don't have a valid identity document or something like that. And they want, and they, everybody wants to know how long am I gonna be here? And the best you can say to them is like, well, hopefully we'll get you out tomorrow. If we don't get you out after that, hopefully we'll get you out the week after that. And if we don't get you out the week after that, we'll have a better chance of getting you out in a month. And even that like fact of not knowing whether it's going to be 24 hours or seven days or 38 days 
that really takes a toll on people. So the, the cap, I think, would significantly reduce the psychological trauma that's inflicted on immigration detainees. Yeah, it's very heartbreaking. I mean, you know, the mental um, repercussions of detention are well known and studied. And so I, I mean, how do you self-care as a lawyer representing these people and hearing their stories and having to answer their questions? You know, how do you keep doing this work? How do you maintain, um, you know, a semblance of normalcy or sanity in, in your day-to-day -day life and work? I think the only way I can really answer that question is to say that it's only a semblance of sanity and normalcy. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, um, I just wanna say, you know, I um, think the work you've been doing is amazing. I've watched you uh, mainly, um, you know, on your feet at the Supreme Court during the China and most recently um, in the Safe Third Country Agreement litigation, looking forward to seeing you again, hopefully the Supreme Court will grant leave. Um, but uh, all I can say is, um, you know, a, a few of these stories and these cases would not have made it to the public eye without um, your advocacy. So I wanted to ask you about that. You know, some lawyers really shy away from media, really stick to just the work of lawyering. But at what point do you decide, you know, um, you know, I know you're you're connected with advocates and activists as well. I mean, at what point do you decide we need to do more? We need to involve other people. We need to reach out to media. Um, you know, how, how, and for me, I think it's really important that when you wear a lawyer hat that you consider these other roles, that you recognize that being a lawyer is not the only way to resolve conflict with the law or conflict with the state for that matter. Um, and I wonder if you could speak about that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, going public is very risky for people, um, and it and it is certainly a double-edged sword. Um, it, it sometimes opens doors for them, but it sometimes also really causes the government to retrench their position and refuse to budge in any way. Whereas they may have been more conciliatory if things were out of the public eye. Um, I can't actually think of the last time that I actively solicited media coverage in any of my cases. Um, usually when clients talk to me about it, I lay out the pros and cons of it for them. And most of the time people are, I think, very legitimately um, hesitant to go public and they often elect not to. Um, but yeah, a lot of my cases have been in the public eye and they were in the public eye regardless of my involvement or oftentimes before we got involved. And it certainly makes a difference when the coverage is informed and sympathetic. And, you know, the, the, the work of working to, to make sure <laughs> that the right story comes out is is challenging and time consuming even well-meaning journalists have a hard time understanding what's going on and they have different priorities and different um, needs and they don't always care that much about accuracy in some respects but it's very important to clients um yeah i don't know it's not something i've ever really like 
thought about or have a particular strategy to. I feel like I'm always just improvising as we go. But the, I mean, the kind of the, I think one of the main benefits that came from the habeas corpus litigation is because it was inherently public in a way that detention review proceedings just aren't, even though they're technically public, they're often a warehouse basically in Etobicoke. Um, and because the media was paying attention to some of them, it just, it created an environment where more people could understand how unjust what was happening to these people was. Mm -hmm. well. Thank you. Thank you for your work in this area. Migration Conversations is created and hosted by me, Professor Jamie Liu, and produced by University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow June Gleed. This podcast was made possible with the guidance and assistance of University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow Ritesh Kotak, Carleton University graduate student Rachel McNally, as well as the generous support of Carleton University and the University of Ottawa shared online projects and initiatives. You can find more Migration Conversations episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube with closed captions. Thank you for listening and a special thank you for all the guests who have shared their experiences publicly.